uh, very beginning of the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. So, like hearing a story, so just trying to put yourself back there. Um, this is the account of heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, uh, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a loving being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds, it, sorry, it winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onks are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur, and the fourth river is Euphrates. I'm pretty sure Tigris runs through India, by the way. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought forth them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the, ne- so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. I wonder if he went, if he went ouch. Then <laughs> the Lord God took a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame.
Um, so if you're paying close attention to the Genesis 1 sermons that Graham was talking about, and then looking at this reading here in Genesis 2, you'll notice our first, I want to say problem, but not necessarily a problem, but just something that makes us think a bit harder. Um, in Genesis 1, we saw trees and vegetation on the third day, and mankind not until the sixth day. But then here in Genesis 2, it seems that man is created before some trees. Um, so there's a couple of different ways that we can approach this. The first one, just scream that it's a contradiction and that the Bible is unreliable and we can't believe it and put it back on the shelf and move on. Um, I find it quite unlikely that the writers who revered these texts so much would, you know, within two pages, have this big contradiction and think it was, a, you know, clearly they didn't think it was a big deal. Either it was there intentionally or, you know, we're hung up on something that they were not. And if they would have known that those are the differences are there and left it that way intentionally. Um, our other options are that Genesis 1 and 2 is all just metaphors and not meant to be taken literally, so we don't really need to worry about the details. Um, a third option, which is where I tend to sit, is that Genesis 2 is, is kind of a zoom-in on part of the story, um, a zoom-in on day six of creation, the creation of man, uh, and focusing on a different part of the story, um, and ge- the fact that Genesis 1 didn't want to distract from the big picture that it was painting and focus on these details, whereas Genesis 2 is wanting to tell us the details and not the big picture. Um, And some others say that Genesis 2 is a sequel to Genesis 1, and it's talking about specific creation on a different part of the earth, and in this view that some people think Adam and Eve weren't the first people, but were created as the first priests. Um, And it's a really interesting view. If you haven't heard it before, I don't know, it's it's an interesting rabbit hole. I don't believe it, but if... If you get interested in other views, go look it up, but I won't be focusing on that one. Um, So as I said, I I tend to agree with that third option, that Genesis 2 is kind of a zoom in on Genesis 1, day 6. So as uh, as Graham mentioned in Genesis 1, it seems to be poetic. It's got repetition, it's got structure, and it's well thought out the way that the, the passages are arranged. And that the main focus is on order and function rather than material creation. With that big picture being that God is building a cosmic temple for him to dwell in. And Genesis 2 seems to be a change of genre. For the most part, it was written more as a historical or documenting passage. You know, it's, not, it's not very repetitive and it makes specific mention of geography and physical descriptions. And the language and the structure is, you know, it's clunky, um, at least in English it is. It's not eloquent like Genesis 1. It doesn't read like a work of art. It reads like someone writing a story. Um, And as we'll see, uh, we we can see this similar situation a few times in the Bible. Um, In the book of Exodus, we find duplicate accounts with focusing on different details. Um, There's there's an account of crossing the Red Sea and the Egyptians chasing them, and it's, it's descriptive and historical and clunky. Then a few pages over, we hear this a different account that's poetic and well thought out, and you know the, the details might conflict, but that's because an artist is, you know, a, a singer is using a different word so that it will rhyme, or so that the, the phrases are equal. They're, they're focused on a work of art rather than a detailed story. Um, same thing in Judges. There's an account of a lady called Deborah in a battle, and again we have a historical account: so and so fighting so and so. This happened. Really boring, really clunky, horrible to read, but you know what happened. And then a few pages later, there's a song and a poem about it, which is, you know, it's very 
flowery and fluffy. You know, both, both are still true and both are the word of God, but they're, they're serving quite different purposes. The people of that time will remember the song, and, and you know you'll be able to remember that off the top of your head. Whereas a clunky story of this and this and this. You know. Same with what we probably find in Genesis one and two. More people will be able to spout Genesis one off the top of their head. Genesis two, not so much. Okay. Um, so this this chapter, there's quite a bit going on. So the structure of this, I'm basically just going to walk through the verses, and we'll we'll unpack them as as it goes. So it starts with, No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So it seems to start with that the plants mentioned here, uh, they're qualified or they're specific. So they're different to the general trees mentioned in day three of Genesis 1. And the words here refer to plant of the field or herb of the field and, and it also tells us why these plants haven't shown up yet because there was no rain so there's no water for them to grow and there's no one to work the ground so it seems to be talking specifically about you know cultivated plants you're, you're farming your things that you need humans to get the soil right and look after them they're not going to naturally pop up Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Um, and the Hebrew word, uh, the Hebrew here is worth looking into. Um, I like it particularly because it's really unhelpful. Um, usually people share the Hebrew to you know, help unpack it, but here it just adds to the confusion and doesn't help us at all, <laughs> other than let us know we're dealing with a confusing text. Um, so the word for man is Adam. And he was made out of the ground, being Adama, which means ground or dirt or red, you know, the colour of the earth. And then later that same word, Adam, is used as a proper noun for his name. So God created a man, Adam, out of the ground, Adama, and named him Adam. Very clear? <laughs> so it's kind of the equivalent of me saying that I made a snowman. Like, not, not even a snowman, that's too defined. I made... a a thing of snow, out of snow, and called it snow thing. <laughs> I like it, anyway. <laughs> I think it's quite good for getting us on the page that no one can tell you this is exact, this is, you know, I know the secrets of this passage. I don't think anyone does. It's strange, and it will keep us searching and reading it for a very long time. So other accounts of creation from different religions, um, they don't describe creation as work, and then they're not intentional. Um, you know, the world was created from gods fighting or monsters fighting, and it came out of the body of another god or a dead monster. The, every, all the other accounts are accidental rather than intentional in, in that part of the world. Um, and they also said that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. You know, um, matter is bad, but we need to escape this world and, and get into something else. You know, work, work is bad, our bodies are bad. If you have to work, at least don't do physical work. You know, be, a, be a teacher or a philosopher or something, something high up. You know. Don't be a labourer. That's, that's your worst option. But I quite like in this passage that you know, God gets his hands dirty. He, he makes man out of, out of the earth. Gets, and then he tells man to be a gardener. You know, and there, again, there's a whole sermon that goes down that 
that road of God dignifying all kinds of work, um, which we won't focus on today. But, yeah, I just think it's quite a cool distinction compared to other creation stories. Um, and another thing I love about this, this particular verse is the conflicting messages it sends, which I think are intentional. Um, like, on the one hand, it's, it's humbling and it's almost insulting, you know, like creating humans out of dirt. Yeah, it's the most common and lowly thing. Um, materially, we're, we're actually not that exciting. We're, you can find our makeup anywhere. Biologically, we're very interesting, and you know, it's a complicated thing. But yeah, break us down. We're very common. We're not made of anything special. But you know, in that same phrase, you know, we're, we're lowly, made out of the dirt. But also, God Himself has taken time to form us and breathed into us His breath. And we're also given purpose, um, again, reaching back to Genesis 1, where God's saying he'll make us in his image. Um, and we've talked about this quite a lot in the past, about how we're made, you know, made to be God's ambassadors to image God. Um, you know, we're, we're God's image bearers to do with function and purpose, you know, what we were designed to be and do, not the fact that we walk on two legs and can talk and look the way we are. That's, that's not what God means by making made in his image. Um, I find it more helpful to think of it as like an action that, we are made to image God. You know, it's our function, not our physical makeup. Um, and our, our culture is confused. You know, it says that we're products of accident and chance. We've got no purpose, no value at all. We're just physical things, no different to the un- other animals. But then, at the same time, society also, you know, complains and isn't that happy when people start behaving like animals. Um, which I feel like is a bit unfair when you're, you're taught at school that you are just an animal. So. What's wrong with that at the end of the day? It's, it's quite hard to justify both positions, I feel. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So that the word for garden is... is referring to something fenced in and protected and and ordered. And God made this specific garden in a region called Eden. And he puts the man there. So it seems like the man was probably made elsewhere and put there. Um, And so Eden doesn't appear to be synonymous with the whole earth. There's there's a few views out there that say Genesis 2 is a a repeat of Genesis 1 that's symbolising the whole earth. Um, I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's talking of a specific garden in a specific place. And in the middle of this garden, there's two special trees. We've got the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I'll let Sarah focus on that one next, next week, the, the knowledge of good and evil. But that tree of life is an interesting one. And there's a view that I came across a few months back and I found really interesting. And I'm, I'm not sure if I'm fully convinced, um, but I thought it was worth sharing. Um, so I always assumed that Adam and Eve were created immortal, that you know, they would live forever and then when you sinned, that screwed up humanity and now we die. Um, so there's a thought that them in themselves were not created immortal, that they would naturally die. But the fact that they were placed in this garden with access to the tree of life meant they had the ability to, for, of eternal life, an ability to live forever. But that, <laughs> that was something provided by God, not, not them of themselves, if that makes sense. Um, and again, as Sarah will cover in the fall coming up, 
what was lost was that access to God, that access to life. And I think that fits quite well with, again, what we hear of Jesus, you know, I am the tree of life, about you know, abiding in him, about coming to him for that life, not, not about attaining what humans used to have in of themselves, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's a, it's a new idea to me, um, but I haven't stumbled across any negative implications of believing that yet. But yeah, interested in, in what anyone thinks on that. And I won't read through this passage fully, but again, it's, it's hammering the point that there's specific rivers flowing from this garden, and the, the rivers were separated into four different ones, and covering specific lands and what goes on in this land, which I think is hammering the point that this is, you know, documentary historical text. It's not a poem. You wouldn't, no poet or musician would write verses like this. Um, it's it's trying to let us know that this this was in an actual place and you could go visit it. Um, and a lot of work's gone into to mapping where these rivers are today and where these regions are, which I think is a bit of a waste of time. It, it's very interesting, but if there was a flood, whether it was worldwide or the whole region, that's going to scrape anything of what was previously there. I suspect the naming of the regions and the rivers we have today is probably using familiar names or names passed down to you to name the name that land in you. Um, sort of similar to, you know, in Hamilton we have, well, the city of Hamilton is named after other Hamiltons. You know, Victoria Street, it's not the original Victoria Street, it's a calling back to something from our past that we know. Um, so yeah, I don't expect anyone to go for a treasure hunt and be able to find Eden or that kind of thing, or these are the rivers it was talking about. I don't think there's much point in that other than clearly it's telling us it was at one point a real place. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the, knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So a man's put into this amazing garden created by God, and he's been given a job to work it and take care of it. And he's free to eat from anything except that one tree, and warned that he would die if he did. So if we were reading a more literal translation of this, we would read the words cultivate and keep instead of that phrase work it and take care of it. And those same words for cultivate and keep uh, are often translated as serve and guard or serve and keep. And when those two words occur together in other places in the Old Testament, they're referring to one of two things. It's either the Israelites serving God and guarding or, or keeping God's word or to priests in the temple who, you know, who keep the service or keep the charge of God or the tabernacle. So the writer of Genesis 2 here is portraying Adam against the description we're given later of Israel's priests, that he was a model or an archetype of the priests who served and guarded or, or took care of God's first temple. So we heard this in Graham's sermons that, you know, God is creating Creation as we know it is God's temple. And that's sort of zoomed in and highlighted more in this second passage that Eden Eden is also God's temple, but perhaps more specifically relating it to the Holy of Holies or you know, the place where God God obviously dwells in everything. But Eden is the place where he walks with man and where, where that relationship goes. 
so there's a, a few sim- um, similarities here between the Garden of Eden and Israel's temple. The first one, obviously, um, the garden is the garden. Um, but in, in the temple, there were things that were specifically designed to look like plants and trees. There was a lampstand that was placed directly outside the Holy of Holies in the temple, and instructions were given that, to make it appear like a tree with seven branches coming off a single trunk. trunk. It, it describes it with tree-like imagery, including flowers, branches, and almond blossoms. So it's suggested that the lampstand was designed this way to point to the tree of life in the garden and that people were coming to meet with God's presence, to, to meet with that tree of life. Uh, both the temple and the Garden of Eden is where people would go to meet with God's presence. In um, that same Hebrew phrase used of God walking back and forth in the garden, um, I think we come across that in the next chapter. Um, that, that's the same phrase that's used to describe God's presence in the tabernacle um, when later Israel goes to meet with God's presence and, and talk with them there. We also have the um, cherubim. Um, so later on, when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, uh, spoilers if people don't know that, sorry, that's coming up next time. Um, but so they're kicked out of the garden and God places some cherubim at the entrances to guard the way to the tree of life. And the same in the temple that we're told that there are statues of cherubim guarding the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle. Um, and the same is seen on the Ark of the Covenant as well. Located on a mountain. So Genesis 2 doesn't specifically mention garden, the Garden of Eden being on a mountain. Um, but a couple of the prophets mention things like you know, Eden is the holy mountain of God and, and references to it being on a high place. Um, and same with Israel's temple was on Mount Zion. Um, and, and you probably also remember it, lots of places in the Old Testament talk about the high places or the sanctuaries up high, about all these other conflicting places of worship were always up in high places. And the danger of death. So just like in the Garden of Eden, there's a warning of death if things don't get done correctly from eating from that one tree that they're not meant to. And we read the same with going into the Holy of Holies or touching the Ark of the Covenant. And yeah, a lot of these features appear in other ancient temples throughout that part of the world, especially that garden imagery and being built on a high place. So when the Israelites first entered the Promised Land, they were told to destroy the high places the idols, molten images of the Canaanite inhabitants. Um, They were also instructed not to worship at those high places that were already set up. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. So I I like it how God said it's not good for man to be alone. He needs a helper, and then he gives him this big job without giving him a helper. Um, So some people say that that could be God, you know, making sure that Adam realised he needed help so that he would truly appreciate it, uh, rather than, you know, spoil him by solving his problems before he was aware of them. And in verse 19, where it says, it says he, had, he had formed out of the ground the wild animals, so I think that's a calling back to Genesis 1, that the animals were created before this, and now he's bringing them to the garden to be named, not a second group of animals being created. 
but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And I feel like that word helper, um, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like we kind of use it in a way that's minimising what's intended here. Um, I think of it jokingly, you know, like if Becca's unpacking the dishwasher and I come in last minute and take one cup out and say, you know, I helped. <laughs> and you kind of, yeah, that, that's our reaction. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> didn't, didn't really need your help, but thanks. Um, you know, but God is saying here that it's not good for man to be alone and he needs a helper. And he needs a helper in the sense that he needs someone to help perform the priestly duties in the temple. And that's not someone to sort of walk behind him, pick up his robe and stop it dragging on the floor. But a helper in the sense that if, if there isn't someone helping him, it won't get done. It, you know, it's an essential helper or an you know, essential teammate, is I think what's viewed here. It's, it's not a belittling, you know, come help me like you might bring your five-year-old to help you do something that takes twice as long. You know, it's, I can't do this without you, I think is, is the language here. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. So this is the bit that I think we, we focus so much on this one part. And while I hold that this, this whole Genesis 2 appears to be documentary, historical, it's saying things that actually happened and the details are important. It's going to sound like I'm flipping here. Far, just hear me out. So again, that, that's spoken very, very blatantly and very... You can't argue that the language of the text is saying that happened. Um, and you probably have that picture in your head, the same that I do, that, you know, God's the surgeon, anaesthetic goes on, knocks him out, takes out a rib, makes a woman. That's, that's the story we get told anyway. But I, I don't think that's a helpful approach and I, I don't have an issue with saying that literally happened that way. But it's very unhelpful. And here's what I mean by that. Um, that, that language of being put into a deep sleep. So that's, that's used in other places as well. And it's not used in normal sleep. It's associated with people who receive visions. Um, a couple of examples from Daniel was, you know, he's saying, yeah, and now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground. And he goes on to describe this big vision from God. Uh, or again, you know, yet I heard the voice of his words. And when I heard the voice of his words, then I was in a deep sleep on my face and my face towards the ground. It, it's this language that, that comes before a vision and, and all these crazy things going on. If, if Adam was really knocked out, it's unlikely he would have known the process of what happened. I mean, it's possible God could have told him, I knocked you out and put you to sleep, and this is what I did while you are out. You know, that, That's possible. I don't have an issue with that. When I have my wisdom teeth taken out, I'm missing half a day. You know, My brother picked me up and took me home, made some embarrassing Snapchat videos. I've, I don't know what happened. You know, It's not normal. If we're thinking of a surgery and a literal operation, you don't know what happens when you're asleep. Even a normal sleep. If you're asleep and something happens in the room, you don't know that. If, unless you wake up, we're not told Adam woke up mid-surgery. That would be a that'd be a different story. So I'm not 100 percent sure that this literally happened. And as I said, I don't actually have an issue with it literally happening. You know, God creating woman out of the dust of the ground or out of a rib. They're both miraculous. It's it's not an intellectual issue. 
God can do anything. Um, that even if it did happen literally like this, it appears that this isn't the point. Instead, God, God seems to be making sure that Adam understands a message, not how he did it. And, and I'll show you why I think that. You know, If we look at Adam's response, so, Adam, so God puts Adam into a sleep, took out a robe, closed him up, made a woman, showed her to Adam. And here's his response. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be, be, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So if I was in his place... Um, I wouldn't be as poetic as Adam, you know. I'd probably be freaking out, first of all. Um, but secondly, if, if I was calm and not freaking out, I would be focused on, on the how, you know. God, you made, you made this out of this, you know. I'd, ex- I'd expect a poetic piece screaming about how amazing God is and how creative and how he can do anything. Instead, what he says is, is about relation and function and, and how he's viewing his wife who is brought to him. He wasn't at all interested in the questions that, you know, this, this passage is argued so much about between Christians and non-Christians, and we're all focusing on the how, you know. People joke that, you know, it's silly to think that. That doesn't even to appear to have crossed Adam's mind. God made sure that the main message Adam received wasn't how he did this. It was the reason and the function. And from Adam's response, it, appear that, it appears that that message sunk in. So God gave that vision to Adam, and maybe it literally happened too, that's fine. But the most important thing that was that God is trying to, to convey to Adam how he should relate to this woman, how to treat her, how to view her, you know, who she is to you, not how she got here. Um, and it reminds me of a sermon I did a while back in the book of Acts, and it was a time when Peter received a vision with a bunch of unclean animals on a sheet and God telling him to eat them. And he understood the message. And, you know, we don't read then Peter found a lizard and ate it. You know, he, he, he understood a, a description of literal things that you could read as being literal, but he, he saw that as a message to get a point across to go talk to the Gentiles. So in a similar way, God is using the vision of something physical to send a message about something non-physical, you know, something spiritual and relational. And if we unpack that a bit more, that word for rib, I'm not going to try to pronounce that for you, um, but that word is also used in other locations referring to a side, so the side of a hill or the side of the ark or the side chamber of a temple. So it can mean specifically a rib, but it can also mean generally the side of something. Um, and, and I think that's the message that God's trying to get across. You know, there, there's, there's a pun there or a word play in, in its original language that would have had a lot more impact you know, than we read here in English. You know, God's essentially saying, you know, this is, this is your other half. This is, this is part of you. you are in, I'm hesitant to say you are incomplete without this. Um, and this isn't a sermon about how you're incomplete unless you get mar- married. I'm definitely not saying that. But I think the message is that if you are married, then this is a healthy way to view your partner you know, as, a, as a teammate, as an essential helper. We shouldn't be looking to the animal kingdom for you know, advice and models on how to relate to our partners. And, and that would have been Adam's comparisons at the time, right? We see animals around. God's now created an essential helper for you. This is how you are to relate to yours. Don't, don't look at what's out there and how they're relating to each other. This is how you are to relate to yours. And yeah, with, with that message, I don't, it's, 
it's quite cool going back to this, how you, it should shoot down any sense of male superiority. Um, obviously, that's not been the fact throughout history. But going back to the source, it's hard to view it, this as anything less than equality. God's making sure Adam gets that message of how to relate to this woman. And I quite like this quote from a guy called Matthew Henry that I think sums it up quite well. Women were created from the rib of man to be beside him, not from his head to top him or from his feet to be trampled by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him and near to his heart to be loved by him. And as we go on, so after Adam's had his very poetic, you know, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, the writer then expands on this saying, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So this would make sense if we, if we believe, as I've been talking, the focus is on the message and how to relate to your wife. If the focus is on this is how a woman is made, therefore that's... A woman is made from the man's rib, and that is why a man leaves his parents and is united to his wife. There's no connection between those two, is there? I mean, Adam and Eve didn't even have parents to leave in the first place. But, but setting up as a relational model that you are to, if you, if you partner up, it's not saying you must partner up, but if you do, view them, view them as your essential helper. Your priority is now to your partner, not your family. So yeah, that longer, that, the logic doesn't stand up very well if we believe the focus is on how a woman is made. And maybe it did literally happen like that, but that is clearly not the focus. And if we, get, if we believe the literal, that's how a woman is made, and forget the message of how to relate, we're missing everything. It, it doesn't help us much to really firmly believe that woman is made from the rib of a man but man is superior and can trample them. You know, that, you're missing a lot if that's your conclusion, I think. Um, and so before we finish up, I, I feel it's really important to add something here that I wish was emphasised for me a lot earlier growing up. Um, that Genesis 2, and quite a lot of the Bible actually, is, is portraying models or, or general instruction for God's design and purpose for humans. So it's like a big picture painting and instructions for how things are designed to be. But obviously, life doesn't always go to plan. And while that doesn't make God's instruction any less true, um, I think it's really important that we do read and, and understand as much as we can in the Bible. But it's easy to get the wrong impression when we zoom, on, zoom in on specific things like this. So, so if you're single and your key takeaway take from this message is that you need to find your other half or that you cannot achieve your purpose without your essential helper, then you've misapplied what I'm talking about. You know, the, the teaching about viewing your wife as your other half, as your essential helper, is still very much God's word and it's very important teaching. But it's instructional in the sense that if you are married and not viewing your partner in a healthy way, then stop and read how God says to view your wife. The, f- the focus of the story isn't you must find your other half. It's if you have found someone, this is how you should view them and treat them. In the same way, you know, if, if you haven't got kids, whether you can't or you don't want them or you haven't thought about it, whatever, if your takeaway from this is that you need to hurry up and have kids or feel that you've failed your purpose because you haven't had them, 
then again you've misunderstood what I'm talking about. It's, it's not hard to find verses, especially in the New Testament, that speak about the benefits of remaining single and not having kids, you know, being free to serve God and others without conflicting priorities, to be content at whatever stage of life you're in. These instructions in Genesis are important instructions, and they are God's commands, and we shouldn't shy away from reading and understanding them, but we kind of need to and sometimes hold them over here as we look and understand them. You know, that they're necessary instructions for God's plan of filling the whole earth with his image bearers. You know, obviously we need some humans to marry and have kids for that to happen. But his vision is that you would bear his image wherever you are in the earth, and you better do a good job of that than produce an army of kids. You know, our, our personal priority is that in our current state, we are to be God's image bearers, just as we are, not to focus on the details of instructions that were given to humankind in general and feel like it's all resting on us you know that that command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth is a general not a specific if that makes sense so as we wrap up in Genesis Genesis 1 Graham was painting that picture of creation being a temple you know God's dwelling place and then in Genesis 2, we see that intensified and zoomed in. That Eden is the place where God walks back and forth with mankind, where his presence is experienced in a more intimate way. So a bit like the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy of Holies in the temple. And it's important to have that picture in our heads early on, because as we keep going through Genesis, we'll see this theme to continue to pop up, and it will help us to make sense of quite a few things that without this view of temple language and imagery there's some strange things that are pretty hard to make sense of without, without this background. So the main picture, the big picture theme that's going on here is that the garden is a temple and Adam and Eve are the first priests. They're archetypes or models of how things were designed to be. You know, God's model for humans, that they would fill the earth. And as mentioned, that's a big picture plan, so it doesn't mean everyone needs to have kids. The, the goal isn't everyone would be fruitful and multiply, but that humans, as God's image bearers, would fill the earth. And it sort of feels like there's two quite different things going on here. Like there's a practical, you know, social family structure kind of thing being talked about. And then on another level, this temple imagery, you know, painting the picture of them being priests and to work and cultivate and keep and to walk with God. And I don't think that's intended to be viewed as two separate things. I think there's probably more of a link to those than, than we think, or, or at least how I think. Um, I tend to separate in my mind the you know spiritual churchy things and not see so much connection to the day-to-day things, um, like you know going to work or eating dinner with your family and the people we encounter throughout your day. But I think all these things can fall within our job description of being God's image bearers of walking with God in any situation, of inviting people to join, making sure others know God, and offering comfort and support and encouragement when needed. And those, those spiritual things won't get far in the big picture without practical things like healthy family structures and obviously without people multiplying. And if we limit being a priest or being God's representatives to just the, you know, the ordained priests or the people that preach in church or whatever we think of the... You know, official church people, we're not going to achieve that vision of 
filling the whole earth with God's image bearers, no matter how many kids we have within the church, most people aren't going to step foot within this, within a church building. It's it's an out there thing. And I, I think God didn't want humans filling the earth just as a practical thing. You know, I don't think he thought it would be great if we had humans on every square metre of the planet. Um, from our experience, or maybe just my cynical perspective, human beings covering the whole earth isn't that great. Um, we do a lot of harm and a lot of damage. Yeah, I could probably make a case for the opposite. Um, but, but God's vision isn't that there would be humans covering the whole earth. It's that he would have God's representatives covering the whole earth. And by that I mean human beings fulfilling their function. You know, that, that would be a great thing, right? If, we, if humankind was fulfilling its function as truly being image bearers of God as intended, that, that is a great goal and a great vision. Whether that's representing God to other humans or to, to creation and animals. You know. And it's quite hard to imagine how things would be like that if 100% of humans were fulfilling this 100% of the time. You know, it would be a very different world. But we've never, you know, even in our own lives, we've never experienced being able to do that ourselves 100% of the time, all the time. But, but that was, that's the vision that God is talking of, and that's the goal back in Genesis, that, that humans would fill the earth. Isn't that we would have 9 billion humans ruining the place? You know? It's that you wouldn't, you know, if you're walking down the street, if you're having a bad day, the next person you run into is going to be a source of encouragement, of pointing you to God, of... I don't know. Again, we, we haven't <laughs> we haven't been given a chance to see what that actually looks like. So it's a lot of speculation, but I think that would that is the vision and that is a good thing, not a bunch of humans as we know them.